Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Brian Sullivan. Brian is a longtime leader at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, where he currently serves as Digital Publications Lead, managing the Birds of the World Project, and he previously served as the project leader for eBird from 2005 to 2017. Brian has conducted field work on birds throughout North America for the past 25 years. Birding travels, photography, and field projects have taken him around the world, and he has written or co-authored several books and scientific papers, including Better Birding, Tips, Tools, and Concepts for the Field, the Crossley ID Guide, Raptors, and the forthcoming Princeton Guide to North American Birds. He is co-creator of the groundbreaking Raptor ID app for mobile devices. He also served as photographic editor for the American Birding Association's journal, North American Birds, from 2005 to 2013. Today, we discuss many of these topics, including the transformation of eBird into a global ornithological resource developing and launching the Birds of the World Project, which is the definitive resource for all 10,721 bird species, and we take a peek into the exciting future roadmap of Birds of the World. We also discuss Brian's forthcoming Princeton Guide to North American Birds, which is a project 15 years in the making. Brian's experiences in print media and cutting-edge online media give him a visionary's perspective for the future of online resources for scientists and birders alike. We spend time discussing how remote sensing, phone sensing, and augmented reality might accelerate community awareness of and engagement with the environment. And this may come about much sooner than one might think. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, Brian Sullivan. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me today. It's exciting to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. And really before jumping in, I wanted to share a little anecdote. Recently, I wanted to go birding and I was gonna go down to this area near where I live called Moonglow Dairy. And I was looking at eBird to uh, scope out the trip, see what had been seen and if there were any you know, rarities. And I had seen your name as having gone there the week prior and you had seen 109 species just at that one hotspot. And I suppose just to demonstrate how good of a birder you are and how much you know and uh, how observant that you are, I only saw 67 one week later in the exact same location in the exact same amount of time. Just an a, amazing accomplishment for you to be able to do that. Well, that site is a spectacular site here in Monterey County. It's very famous. It's covered a lot by birders. has a lot of unique habitats that mix together right along the coast. And there's just about any day of the year, 100 species possible or more at Moonglow Dairy. Some of getting that number involves sort of spending the time, but also knowing the site well enough to be able to look over the certain areas that are required to pick off the rare shorebirds and the raptors in the sky and knowing exactly where to go to get a couple of different land bird species. But yeah, most most times you visit Moonglow, you can get a very, very large species list. Yeah, I love to go birding in Monterey County. It's uh, one of my favorite spots to go. One of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you is your long-standing 
um, employment, I should say, at, at the renowned Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And as I understand it, you started way back in the early days of eBird. I think it was in 2005. What was eBird like way back then? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to join Cornell Lab of Ornithology back in 2005. eBird was young at that time, as was the internet and the technology around it. So eBird was launched in 2002. You know, that was in the times of AOL and dial-up connections and things like that. So I think it was a a really forward-thinking concept. Everybody was excited about it in the birding community. Uh, But when you went to use it, it was really difficult because you had to keep a, a notebook, you know, full of observations while you're in the field and then come home and struggle through trying to type all that information in uh, over a dial-up connection into a into basically a browser window that would often crash. And, you know, it was, it was really tough. Uh, so I think when eBird first launched, the idea was ahead of the technology. But by the time I got there in 2005, the technology was getting better participation in eBird was fairly flat at that time, and uh, the functionality hadn't changed much in a couple of years. When I joined, I, I came in with uh, Chris Wood also, and we, we sort of took a different view of the project and thought about it not as a citizen science project where the goal was to try to convince people to do something because it was good for birds. We really changed the message around to here's a set of tools that help birders do what they want to do, which is record the birds that they see, keep track of their life lists, find birds, plan travel around birding, things like that. So we spent about a year redeveloping eBird, um, mostly from an output tools perspective, so that it was a better tool suite for birders. And, you know, some of the no-brainer ideas at that time were basic life list. (laughs) You know, people were putting in observations in space and time that were geo-referenced so we could easily just build lifeless for them. And those those simple tweaks really caused eBird to take off and people got addicted to it pretty quick and it built its own culture. And yeah, we've been pretty successful with growing it over the years um, to the point where even now the growth rate annually is up well over 20%. I think in 2020, we had 180 million observations submitted from around the world. So it's going really well. Yeah, I joined maybe in that 2005 timeframe. I'd have to look at my profile. I guess by that point, you had already had some impact uh, because I remember it being useful from a life list perspective from day one. And I can still remember actually taking my life list out of a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet and putting it in you know, to, uh, to eBird. And I never, never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> How, how did you get connected with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology? Well, I was working out on San Clemente Island, which is one of the Channel Islands off Southern California. I was out there for a number of years uh, doing field work on loggerhead strikes and some raptor field work out there. I'd been in the field at that point probably for 12 years or so, maybe a little longer. You know, while I was out there, and just sort of generally traveling around doing field work, it became obvious to me that a lot of field work, at least survey work, was very similar to what birders do every time they go birding. You know, it's just that when birders go birding, there was, you know, there's less structure involved to their surveys. 
I saw this job posting while I was out there uh, for an eBird project leader, and it really piqued my interest because it it had you know a lot of possibilities to merge this concept of sort of birding and ornithology. And I think historically those two things have been viewed as quite separate. You know, like ornithology is this thing that's a lot more formal, and you need a lot of training to do. And birding is kind of for amateurs, quite frankly. And I just realized that 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 wasn't the case. They weren't that far apart. And eBird was the perfect opportunity to figure out how to bridge those two things. And, you know, that was part of our goal in the first years of the project was to sort of break down the boundaries between birding and ornithology. So I saw that job posting and thought, well, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this and uh, got lucky enough to get an interview and went to Ithaca and and ended up uh, moving there for the first few years before bouncing back here to California and been based out of the central coast ever since. It sounds to me like a dream job really to be able to work on eBird. And now, you know, I will talk about your other projects here in a moment. Can you point to any skills or attributes or like, you know, what's your tool set that really made you such a strong candidate for them? Well, it's interesting. I don't have much formal training in ornithology from an academic perspective, but in the early 90s, when I was in college, I took a course called Biology of Birds. I was in college in South, uh, southern New Jersey at the time. The teacher for Biology of Birds was, was a professor named Jack Connor, who'd written this book called Season at the Point, which is a fantastic documentary book about a, a single hawk watch season at Cape May Point, which, as you all know, is one of the best sort of migration spots in fall. Um, in the world. And it just really kind of piqued my interest in birds, which started very young, but I drifted away from it. So it was in college when I took this course that I really got kind of sucked back into birds. And to discover that one of the world's migration hotspots was literally, you know, less than an hour away from where I was made me basically blow off just about everything else in life to go down to Cape May Point and watch hawks every day that I could. And I felt like I was learning more in a single day on the platform at Cape May from the people down there that were incredibly talented and ahead of their time in bird identification and natural history, observation, all of that stuff um, was just really formative for me, you know, and I at that point decided, well, I know this is what I want to do. It didn't take long to this idea to crystallize in my head that, wow, you actually can spend your life in the, in this world of birds, you know, where, where, where I grew up in New Jersey, there wasn't really an opportunity given to me that, that that might be a possibility, you know? So once I sort of realized that I, I sort of abandoned where I was in college and just went and did field work. And I started bouncing all around North America, basically taking three or four month positions at first, doing a lot of hawk migration counts and things like that, but then broadening out into other kinds of bird survey work and ultimately landing out on the Channel Islands, as I said, with that longer term position out there. That built my ornithological background from a field perspective enough so that I knew kind of what it takes to run a field project and the science side of that. And I published a fair number of papers around those things. 
But I was always a keen birder too, across that whole series of time, decade or more, you know, just getting better and better at birds. So by the time I applied for Cornell, you know, I had this background of field biology with birding skills, some writing skills. I was closely networked with most of the birding community around North America by working on a publication called North American Birds, you know, over the years. So, yeah, there were, there were a bunch of ties there that were really important for eBird, being part of this, essentially at that time, North American network of birders, keen birders, was really important. Um, I was able to convince a lot of the key players to give it a try and to come on board to help with things like data quality, to then help promote eBird in their communities and things like that. So... It was a real combination of things. And quite frankly, the, the people at the lab, Steve Kelling, John Fitzpatrick, they took a big chance bringing somebody like me in uh, because Cornell is an academic institution and I didn't exactly have the academic credentials for that role. But luckily, they gave me a shot and it worked out. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that anyone pursue that particular path, though, these days. I'm interested, though, those early surveys that you mentioned, were those paying positions or volunteer positions? Like as you were building up your ornithological resume, uh, what did that look like? Yeah. So it was first volunteer. And then, you know, once you build a certain subset of skills, you can start to do paid field work. And, you know, those jobs don't pay much, but you're getting a ton of experience and you're seeing different parts of the world and different avifaunas you're not in it for the money at that stage or maybe at any stage in a career like ornithology. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the the paychecks are, are, are small, but the experience you gain is vast from every one of those field jobs. So the best moments in that period of my life was sort of the time when you get near enough to the end of one field job where you think, well, what do I have to, what can I do next? And you go and you look through all the job listings and decide well, what part of the country do I want to be in? What kind of birds do I want to work with? And you don't always get them, but you try. And um, it was just a great way to, to travel, see birds and gain a bunch of skills that you can't get unless you're out there in the field. And then when the opportunity came up, was there any consideration for previous experience for working with an online presence like what eBird was? Mm, I I mean, I don't really think that was much of a consideration at the point because online presence was barely a thing at the time. Cornell was ahead of the game when it came to putting their resources online and, and understanding the power of the internet as a tool for potentially engaging birders and being able to collect data online. They were doing that in the late 90s already, you know, with, with projects like uh, Great Backyard Bird Count, Project Feeder Watch, eBird came a little bit later. But in terms of like experience with online communities and things like that, it, there, there really wasn't any <laughs> at that point, you know, so I was kind of, I was flying blind a little bit. I mean, I was internet savvy, but not, not at all a tech person. Yeah, I think some of the roles that we take for granted today, like UX and UI designers and so forth, didn't really exist in except in maybe the specialized Amazons of the world or, or what have you. So it's an interesting perspective. So now I understand you're taking on a new project at the lab. Do you want to tell me about that? 
Yeah, so in 2017, I shifted over from eBird to this project called Birds of the World, which is basically a very deep, authoritative life history monograph series that covers all the bird species and all families. And it's available in an online format only. Some people listening might be familiar with Birds of North America, which has been online for about 20 years. And that covered 700 or so North American species, breeders mainly. But those, those monographs were originally published in print and moved online in the mid-2000s or so. Ever since, they've been updated by authors using online tools. Birds of the World was sort of a natural extension of that project, where we ended up taking Birds of North America, a similar uh, life history project called Neotropical Birds, and then another publication called Handbook of Birds of the World, and merged together the content from those three sources to make Birds of the World We also, for families, pulled in content from a print publication called Bird Families of the World. So our goal was to create this platform where people could explore every species and every family in great detail. The idea is to summarize essentially all that is known about a species, which, as you can imagine, uh, can be very little in some cases or a lot in others. So... For example, many species that are poorly known, you know, everything we know about them literally fits on one page. But birds like Golden Eagle that we just published an update for, the word count is in the tens of thousands in that account. You know, it's it's 76 different articles that cover every aspect of Golden Eagle's life history. Everything you ever wanted to know about Golden Eagle is there. You know, the idea is to create this this network of ornithologists now around the world that contribute to this resource and keep it updated. And it's a really exciting project. It's almost like starting something like eBird from scratch again. You know, it's like, it feels like it's 2005 again, and we have this really good idea that we're setting on this course to be uh, something quite amazing down the line. As you've been accumulating these summaries for uh, for birds of the world have you, you mentioned that there's this a huge variety ranging from the golden eagle sized sort of accounts to to single page accounts are there any in particular that have surprised you that you, you look at the species and it's like wow we should really know more about this one already yeah that's a good question there are surprises around every corner in birds of the world i mean one of the things that surprises me about taking on this project I thought I knew a lot about birds until I started this project, and now I realize I know next to nothing when it comes to birds at the global scale. We have this really fun feature on the homepage uh, for Birds of the World called Surprise Me, and it just picks a species at random out of the 10,721 species and shows you that account. And one of my favorite things to do in the morning is just click Surprise Me, and I'd say 80% of the time it lands on a bird that I haven't seen and I've been all around the world. Uh, Half the time it lands on a bird I've never even heard of, you know, some tiny island endemic thing. It's really opened my eyes to avian diversity in a way that I don't think you can get in any other tool. The other thing that's really surprising about it is how I never really considered bird families 
as something to sort of be interested in as a birder until I was able to see them in birds of the world. And, you know, to understand, even at a high level, how the 249 families differ from each other, or related to each other, what species comprise those families, and how unique some of our very common birds here in California are. For example, wren tit is a, you know, small drab bird that almost all of us see every time we go birding here in California, but it's it's the only North American representative, you know, of a family that's mostly old world. So it's really, really cool when you start thinking about the evolutionary uniqueness of birds and sort of what we have in our backyards that way. I don't know. It's hard to pick any one thing that's surprising about birds of the world, because every time I look at it, there's a surprise. I just was doing some mental math on the surprise me feature and 10,721 birds. I think you said Mm -hmm. that's like 30 years worth of surprise me's. (laughs) I think if I did that correctly. Yeah. Well, one thing I like to do with that feature is, you know, just, you you can just click it over and over again and, and just, just have a, have a good time, just kind of randomly exploring birds of the world. And when you land on one that you want to go deeper into, it's pretty amazing resource. So one thing I neglected to ask as we transitioned into this topic, how would you describe the mission of Birds of the World? Like, what is your goal with this project? Yeah, I mean, the mission is evolving for Birds of the World. You know, I think at at its core, as I said, it's to sort of gather and disseminate and make available these deep avian life histories. You know, we want to create something that's authoritative and you know, scientifically valid and defensible so that when people want definitive information, say you're a conservation practitioner or researcher or educator, you have a resource to go to that you know is reliable. And, you know, that's the sort of first order of business for birds of the world right now. But we are also thinking about what it can be in the future. And we're really interested in not only creating a platform that is rich in life history, but potentially a platform for data, life history data on species. So right now, if you wanted to do cross-species analysis, for example, that has anything to do with species attributes or morphology, you know, things like that, you have to cobble together those data from a variety of resources. So we're really thinking about how can we assemble those data sets that power research and make those available also through Birds of the World? Because eBird, for example, has the observational data, species date location piece wrapped up. But what we don't have wrapped up is all the species attributes, like what makes a red-tailed hawk a red-tailed hawk? And how does that species relate to a Swainson's hawk or a ferruginous hawk or rufous-tailed hawk? All of those things need to be pulled into a database that's searchable and accessible. And that's really our next three-year vision for Birds of the World is to begin to incorporate some of those pieces and grow the project in that way. So pardon me if I'm misinterpreting a little bit. So a use case then might be a bird observatory who does bird banding. They could they could input their data into the platform perhaps and then get a an understanding for how the birds they're seeing at their specific location compare to other data? Well, roughly, yes. But 
when we think about the, the specifics of how data get into the system, those tools you're talking about for bird banders, for example, those still need to be built. You can pull some banding data now into eBird, but we have a ways to go before we can really pull in banders data in the kind of resolution that's necessary at the single individual level. But yes, that is on the radar. But what I was talking about was one easy thing to talk about is like a phylogenetic tree. Everybody knows what bird taxonomy is, and it tends to make people's eyes glaze over because it's not very interesting. But when you add a phylogenetic component to a taxonomy, it makes it a lot more interesting because then you can see how species are related to each other. It's not just a list of species that's flat. You start to see the evolutionary links between species, how far or how long it's been since they've diverged, things like that. All of those relationships power a domain of ornithological research that right now is very, it's very difficult to pull a phylogeny together with a data set like eBird. So what we're looking to do is create a comprehensive data resource that includes not only observational data like eBird gathers, but phylogenetic tree data, morphometrics, you know, all of these attributes that people might need to do different kinds of analysis beyond things like species occurrence, abundance, um, changes over time, and those kinds of things that are powered now quite strongly by eBird. So we're thinking about ways to build out the science value of what we what we do at the lab. And Birds of the World will be a key player for those life history pieces. All right, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of jumped into a very specific sort of use case <laughs> that you're right, it, it, those tools don't exist. So there's a lot of room for evolution here, I see. It sounds like this is a project that could last you a while. Do you see it in terms of just making the data available, do you see it morphing into, say, like a mobile phone app or something like that? So people do have that data more readily accessible? Well, right now we build all of our software. You know, it's designed to work on mobile and web. So everything that we build in Birds of the World will work on a mobile web browser. But if you're talking about a native app, I don't really see that in the near future. And it's partly because the kind of information that Birds of the World has available today, the deep life history information, it's really tough to consume in a small space like a mobile screen. But when you think about the future and ways that we can summarize data uh, and make those summaries available, I think the potential is there for um, a mobile app in the future that would harvest certain data components from birds of the world and make those available. For example, say we did have all the morphological data on birds at our fingertips and bird banders wanted to have a little app that showed them the morphometrics of species that they're banding. Right now they have to look in a fairly dense book to try to pull that information out, but we could make that available in a much more visually appealing and easily accessible format. So. It's definitely on the plate for down the line. But for right now, we're pretty satisfied with just the mobile web kind of component that we have. Is there anything else that you want to add about Birds of the World and what it is and where it's going? I think Birds of the World is at a place now where it is 
launched and starting to gain momentum. And it's a super exciting project. We have a lot of ideas. There are a lot of places we can go with it. And part of our challenge right now, just like eBird, is trying to figure out exactly what we prioritize from this long list of things we want to do. So I would say keep an eye on it, you know, in the next couple of years to see how it changes, because I think some of the changes are going to be pretty dramatic that you'll see on this platform. And one of the nice things about it is if you are an eBird user, Birds of the World is already tied to eBird as well as Macaulay Library. So if you have data in eBird, media in Macaulay Library, you, when you're searching Birds of the World, you can see some of those linkages already. And we're going to be really building in a lot more of those connections in the future so that Birds of the World will be able to be a more personalized experience for users than it might be today. Sounds exciting. And yeah, the pace of technology gains, I expect that we will see a lot of changes in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing how it evolves. You know, one other thing I really wanted to chat with you about is some people probably recognize your name from some books that you've authored and also some papers that you've written. I'm wondering how you got into the world of authorship. What was your introductory step there? Right. I think the first thing I ever wrote was an article for Birding Magazine about Derby Hill Hawkwatch in upstate New York along Lake Ontario. And it never really occurred to me that that would be difficult. <laughs> I mean, I went there in maybe 1993 and four, and I was just so taken by the place that I thought, man, everybody in North America should know about how great this Hawkwatch is. So, you know, I was, as I said, already connected to some of the uh, key players at the ABA, so the American Birding Association, which had the journal Birding as well as North American Birds, they still do, being connected to those people, mostly through Cape May. So the editor of Birding Magazine at the time was Paul Lehman, and he lived in Cape May, so I knew him. And uh, it just seemed quite natural for me to write up my experience about the place uh, and the seasons at Derby Hill. And and Paul was all for it. And he helped me through that first article. And that was sort of a, a very good experience. He was a gentle editor <laughs> and uh, helped me write something that was quite readable, I thought. And, uh, you know, I just realized, wow, this it's pretty fun to write something and, and get a publication. So I did a little bit more of that and then got involved with uh, North American Birds, so wrote some summaries up for that, and then moved over more to academic writing, so based on some of the field study I was doing, we're doing some papers, and that was a totally different thing, right? When you're writing a peer-reviewed journal article, totally different writing style, editing process, publishing process. So I kind of got some experience over the years in both the popular literature and the scientific literature. I haven't published you know, thousands of articles, but I really tried to focus on some of the things that I'm most curious about as a birder or a researcher, try to summarize my field work in those areas, uh, particularly around hawks and things like that in papers and other publications. Then the opportunity came to get involved in a couple of book projects Books are a whole different ball game. That's, you know, something that I was quite naive about going into agreements to write books. I thought they'd be fairly easy, but 
I should have known better because of, uh, writing a book is difficult, takes a l- much longer than you ever think it will. The end point is pretty fun, you know, but the process has its ups and downs. So I've been involved, I guess, with five or six books or something like that and been currently working on a North American field guide project for Princeton University Press. That has taken a, a long time. We're going on, you know, 15 years working on that project now. And it's really, you know, incredible to be involved with something like that, but I didn't expect it to take that long and we've got a ways to go on it still. So books are tough. So I snoop around on Princeton University Press website quite a bit and I saw a mention of that book uh, and it made it look like it would be released later this year. Is that still on track or are you able to speak to that? Well, I can speak to the fact that there's no way it'll be released later this year, but uh, ah. I don't have a release date for that book. And partly it's because we're trying to build the definitive North American field guide from scratch with artwork. That's the piece that takes a long time, a lot longer than you think, is you know, an artist creating more than 300 field guide plates takes just years and years and years of work, and they're at it nonstop. The writing component of a field guide can take a lot less time than the painting component or the illustrating component. I would not be surprised at all if this is the last North American field guide ever done with art for that very reason, because there's a big movement toward photo guides, and I've been involved in several projects that just use photos. The collage, if you will, the Crossley style approach as well as non you know, or more traditional approaches to photos. And while I love photos and I think that they're, I spend much time <laughs> taking photos and curating my own images, they're not really a great replacement for illustrations when it comes to trying to teach people bird identification. The flip side of that is you can put together a photo guide fairly quickly if you have the photos at your fingertips. So in terms of getting publications out there quickly, uh, photos are the way to go. And people seem to like photo guides as well. So I think the kind of book that we're working on now might be one of the last of its kind. Do you expect this to be a field guide in the traditional sense, as in it's actually small enough to take into the field? Or is it going to be, say, a larger size reference guide that you're probably more likely to, to keep in the car or at home? It's uh, a field guide. So the size of it is modeled after the the Collins Birds of Europe field guide. And so it's going to be small. And, you know, the idea is for this to be a traditional field guide that you do take in the field with you. Although most people now with their devices and such, they, they pretty much take the field guide in the car. I don't see too many people carrying it around anyway, anymore. That's a good point. Well, when I see anything from Princeton University Press, I get excited because there's just a a very high quality, I think, from pretty much everything I've purchased from them. By the time I publish it, it'll be over, but I was excited today to see they actually have a sale. So I picked up three more guides from them today. Princeton's a great publisher and they create, you know, some of the best books out there. We're super lucky to be working with them and Super lucky to have Robert Kirk as our editor and his patience with this project has been infinite. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think the results at the end are going to be pretty amazing. And I had no idea that a project like this would go for 15 years. That just blows my mind. I I guess my naive view, like I I would have figured figured it was a multi-year project, but that's incredible 
kudos to you for sticking with it and to them for supporting it through uh, through all this time. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's it's good. You know, any book of this scale, and like I said, with art, is it's going to take around that amount of time. Pretty much every one that you look at, whether it's Australia or Europe or the U.S., they all they all take right around this kind of amount of time. So we were a bit naive in our original thinking that it would only take uh, eight years. <laughs> Incredible still. You have a really interesting perspective in that you've been working on physical media and books, and you've also been working on a number of online resources, such as eBird and Birds of the World. So as you look to the future, how do you see these online resources evolving? What new capabilities do you envision, or are you missing that you would like to see come about in the future? eBird and Birds of the World are part of an ecosystem that's being developed at the lab now that includes also Merlin Bird ID, which is an app that you can download for free, that really is a place where we're trying to engage people with an interest in birds to help them answer answer simple questions like, what is the bird that's around me that's singing, you know? So Merlin has right now a bunch of different ways that it can help you answer questions about birds. You can step through a simple series of questions that uses eBird data and probability of occurrence information and species attributes to give you likely choices or matches. But it also has a a very advanced computer vision algorithm that allows you to upload photos, even bad ones, of birds that can be identified by the the Merlin app at, at high degrees of probability. But I do think in the future, we'll be moving in a direction where we can do the same thing with bird sounds, which is, a, which is a key question a lot of birders have. What is the bird that's singing? And we'll also be able to potentially start, you know, leveraging some other kinds of technologies like augmented reality to give you information about what's around you in the field in real time. So we can not only detect what bird's singing, but tell you there's an oven bird potentially we, the, the phone can detect that it's an oven bird and it can say, look, there's a new species for you that you've never seen before, uh, according to your eBird data. You know, it's singing, look over here. This is where they like to be. This is what they sound like. And once you see that bird, we can deliver conservation-related messaging around the bird species. There's, it's just going to be a whole different world of interactivity possible by leveraging technology to sense nature around the observer and give them information about it. So I do think, you know, that might sound a bit futuristic, but it's not far off at all. And a lot of those processes happen today, every day. Um, We just have to figure out how to put it on the device. And the signal to noise ratio in nature is is fairly uh, problematic. So that's that's a big problem that the uh, researchers are working on right now. So there's a lot going on with that side of things at the lab. Yeah, I think technology is going to continue to play an increasing role in bird conservation. So when you think more about not only someone carrying a device like a mobile phone, but creating devices that can monitor the world, you know, in an automated way in places where people don't live. You know, there's a lot of gaps in our data where birders don't go. Those places will begin to be monitored with these automated recording units. You can imagine arrays of networks of recorders filming 
taking sound recordings, processing all that stuff up to the cloud in real time. It's not far off, and soon we'll have a really good measure of the heartbeat of bird populations around the world. And, you know, right now eBird's playing that role, but soon there'll be a lot of machines also playing that role. I think the topic of remote sensing is really exciting in general. And uh, I imagine if we go through the effort to deploy sensors that help us detect where the birds are, what they're doing in, in these more remote locations, we would might as well deploy some other sensors at the same time so we understand what the weather is like and what the soil is like and you know these other factors. So that's to me, that's a very exciting future. It's also a complex future. It's a lot of data to crunch and, and understand and make sense of. It is, yeah. And, and one of the interesting things about eBird is that we're using humans as the sensors right now, right? And we're capitalizing on people's interest in birds to get them to tell us what they saw every time they go birding. And it's been super successful. That human link between the tech and the birds, we can't lose that in the future. You know, we have to we have to figure out how to deploy autonomous sensors to do this stuff in conjunction with our human network and make sure that human beings don't forget why it's important to participate or care about birds. When you first started talking about the augmented reality aspect of it, I admit I had some conflicted emotions <laughs> about the, the benefits there, but I realized there's so much potential to help people understand the nature around them which, as everybody likes to say, that's sort of the first step to caring then is, you know, knowing that this thing is here. And then you ask the question, why is it here? And you could build these tools that help people just jump to that next level of, uh, of understanding, well, why is this oven bird over here? Why did it happen to show up at this park? Yep. To me, that's also exciting. Yeah. And there's a lot of potential for leveraging technology to introduce people to nature who may not otherwise see it. They might have an interest in it, but, you know, for a real beginning birder, for example, or someone with just a passing interest in birds, it can be really daunting to pick up a field guide and see 900 species and you don't know where to start, right? So we can really leverage technology to help people first explore their own surroundings, their own yards. Even in urban landscapes, there are birds that, that we can show them and help them branch out from there. And as you say, once you see birds, you can never unsee them. That's the thing with birds. Um, most people, I think, don't even really see them. They just see it as part of the background. But once you know they're there and you've identified a few, you start to see them more and more, and it's hard to unsee uh, that. And then you start to care about it, and you make decisions for the benefit of that part of the world. So, you know, we, we've got a long way to go, but I think there's a lot of possibilities there to have a bright future with technology uh, around birds. So I have an app installed on my Android phone called BirdNet, and I, I believe it's also a Cornell lab, at least in partnership perhaps with somebody that, uh, that does allow you to record bird song and suggest identifications. Is that within the realm of, of the lab as well? Yeah, BirdNet is a project that's a collaboration between the bioacoustics research program at the lab and some collaborators in Germany. It's an app that does exactly what you say. They're, they're trying to bring it to scale now. It's sort of coming out of the proof of concept stage into the more scaling stage. There's a number of different sound-related apps like that and processes around those apps that are being tuned right now so we can figure out 
you know, what is the best approach to really take to scale globally? You know, all of them require different kinds of training and things like that for the models to perform. And Merlin actually has a, a beta version of a similar sound identification process that works for a couple hundred species at this point, but soon many more. So yeah, it's, both of those things are sort of working in parallel right now, and it sort of remains to be seen which model process is going to be the one that we take to scale. Yeah, and that's a very interesting topic in and of itself, is how do you teach these machine learning models in the first place so that you can get the velocity that you want? But I'll, I'll leave that for a different discussion some other time. So thank you for being so generous with your time. Maybe we can start to wrap up with a few of the questions I, I tend to ask most of my guests. Sure. You know, one thing that I think is often informative is, you know, when you think back over your life of being interested in in the environment, in nature, in birds, do you have a specific event that really stands out to you as, as really escalating your interest? Like you mentioned going to see the Hawk Watch in upstate New York. Is, is that the one that you would point to? I think there are two things, right? One was my parents when I was very young, five years old-ish, understanding that I had an interest in birds and my dad was a biology teacher. He was always outdoors, always taking us outdoors and they really, they supported the idea that I could be interested in birds in a place and time when there weren't a lot of kids interested in birds. Most kids are interested in sports and things like that. And I did move into those things as I got a little bit older in childhood, but that early seed of interest in birds probably really got planted when my parents took me to Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, which was probably an hour and a half away from where I grew up. But it was just something about taking a long drive in October at like eight years old or something like that and hiking up a mountain and then just seeing hawk after hawk glide by in this strong northwest wind, cold, blustery. There was something magical about that. And it just like never left me. So that experience of seeing hawk migration, even as a young child, was like the closest thing to a religious experience I've ever had and still is. So something about that was the first hook. And then the second one was having gotten away from it for many years, taking that class in college, Biology of Birds, where Jack Connor was just so, <laughs> he was so enthusiastic. His his passion for birds came through, that that was the key thing in his life. And it just like opened a lot of doors to me thinking that birds can be something that you think about and do as a career and a passion. And Jack was really supportive of that. He should have failed me in that class, but he passed me just because he knew I love birds so much. But I was hardly ever there because I was out birding. Once he reignited that fire, he couldn't get me out of the field. And that I have him to thank for that. So one thing I neglected to ask you when we were talking about the field guides you worked on is, do you have a particular favorite field guide? You know, I'll, I'll take the pressure off. It doesn't have to be one of yours. Uh, so, you know, uh, one maybe that's not yours that you really enjoy using. I think the Birds of Europe field guide is probably the best field guide I've ever seen. I also very much like the Birds of Australia field guide that was just published. Fantastic. Um, in terms of mobile field guides, I will sort of say that the Raptor ID app that I published with Jerry Liguori back a couple of years ago is, is still, as far as I know, maybe the only field guide made for a mobile app that wasn't a book that was sort of repurposed into a mobile app. So we built that 
from the ground up for a small screen. And I still think that's the best thing out there for Raptors. And I do think um, most uh, apps that, well, Merlin's great too. Um, Merlin's built from the ground up for bird ID. So yeah, I mean, I think Merlin, Raptor ID, both really good. Um, but a lot of the ID apps I think are obviously books that are retrofit into a digital space and they don't work quite as well. In terms of North American field guides, the Sibley guide's still my favorite. The Nat Geo guide's probably a close second. Uh, they both have their strengths and and I like them a lot. And as you're interacting with the public or thinking about your friends and family or just people in general, is there one ecological concept or ornithological concept for that matter that you wish that the, the public knew more about that if you could just kind of snap your fingers that that it would help the public understand the, the state of the, of uh, the sounds a little broad, but the state of the world better. Oh, that's a broad question. And it's a tough one to answer. As I was just alluding to earlier, I think that the general public doesn't see birds and recognize birds as this amazing part of our landscape that you can interact with birds on a daily basis if you choose to. They sing to us. They raise their young in our in our backyards. There's nothing else like that out there, you know, and when you open your eyes to it, it changes your world. But getting people to see them is the challenge. And then I think, obviously, one of the big ecological challenges of our time is climate change. And here in California, where we live, we're seeing it every day now, every year now, things are changing dramatically. We have to do what we can to try to understand that, live with it, turn it around, make changes in our own personal lives to affect positive change for the climate. I know it's sort of a tired, uh, broken record at this point, but this is massive change at ecological scales that we can't imagine. So we're just starting to understand what's going on. And it's uh, pretty scary. Take it from somebody who multiple times in the last couple of years has had fires within a few miles of the house. It's a scary proposition. So that's, that's what I worry about every day. To your point, we're recording this in mid-January, and it looks like there's a potentially dangerous fire weather event coming up just here in the next couple of days, uh, which really is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but exceedingly rare and points to the situation that we're in. Climate change is a topic in and of itself, and the one thing I remind myself of is as big and as daunting as it seems I just keep trying to remind myself to at least do something, at least start, at least and do what I can, uh, because it's, it, it seems oftentimes too easy just to throw in the towel and say, this is bigger than me. But if we all say that, you know, obviously we won't, we won't see improvement. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah. On a, on a positive <laughs> note, if there ever could be one around COVID, it's pretty apparent that when we make changes at scale, like people not commuting to work every day because of COVID, things can change rapidly. This situation can turn around if we choose to turn it around, you know, but it is going to take an entire planet coming to the same sort of decision that we have to make changes in order to turn this around. And that's, that's the biggest challenge of it all. I mean, first your decision making has got to start at home, but when everybody does the same thing, like we saw sort of inadvertently, through the COVID stay-at-home orders, 
air quality went up, all kinds of things changed pretty rapidly. So I think the planet can recover from this if we can make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. To wrap things up then, do you have any other projects upcoming that you want to highlight and how and where can people find out about your work? Well, my work is mostly at the lab now in the digital publications space. So if you, you want to see what we're up to over there, check out Birds of the World, check out eBird. The lab itself has amazing resources for people interested in birds. Bird Academy is an online education platform where you can take all kinds of different courses. The Macaulay Libraries, millions of media assets you can look at and explore for free. Just tons of stuff to do over at the lab website. If you're interested in birds and you value what the lab does, I'll just put a plug in that you should consider becoming a lab member because it is a membership organization and those membership dollars help us do what we do. So consider being a member. Yeah, the Princeton Field Guide's the other main thing on my plate. So trying to trying to keep plugging away at that and hopefully we'll see some movement there pretty soon. Sounds great. And it's a couple of very exciting projects. So thank you so much for taking the time to discuss them today and where they're heading. Hey, thanks for having me. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.